From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Kate Massey hosting with the whole crew via Zoom on Tuesday afternoon. We are coming from various places. It looks to me as if Shane's at home. Eric is in an office, his normal Huntsman office. Adi is like distracted by baseball. God knows where. He's in Adi land. Adi's in Adi land. And I'm out here on the West Coast teaching our students in San Francisco. Gentlemen, afternoon to you. We got two hours ahead of us. We have some interviews. and uh, We have a sports interview in Q2, talking with a developer from ESPN Analytics. And we have a COVID technology interview in Q4. And we've got a lot of sports to talk about in between. Q1, open topics. What's on your mind? What has caught your eye recently in the world of sports? Well, I believe... The Phillies just won, so they uh, yeah, it's happening. <laughs> the, the Phillies, the Phillies being the Braves in Game One caught my eye while you were talking. <laughs> so that's about as recent yeah. as 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 sports gets. I mean, honestly, playoff baseball being back and you know having games during the day it's such a it's an amazing time of year for sports in general. But just having playoff baseball back, well, a, if even a, a the couple, teams I'm not stoked about are involved is great. A couple things real quickly, so. Why was this close? I thought the I thought the Phillies were up by about 16 runs. Uh, they were until yeah. until just in the ninth inning. Zach Eflin came in and gave up a three run home run. So that's uh, this is like it's like it's like every game closed out by Craig Kimbrell for the Red Sox in 2018. It was like it it, it all worked out, but it was it was a heart attack every time. <laughs> you know, it's but, it's amazing how a, 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 a lead of three or four runs is not nearly as safe as you would think. Okay. It's just not that unlikely that a walk, a single, a home run. Catches yeah, you up. What's also interesting, what's also similarly interesting while we're taping the show is that the number one pitcher in baseball this year and maybe every year for the last fifteen years is getting rocked. So the Mariners are up five to two. Justin Verlander has pitched three innings and has given up five runs. So <laughs> this is I go back I go back to what Shane said from the beginning. You know, eventually during the show, I'm sure we'll talk about the. You know, now that there's just eight teams left, the playoff odds they had, you know, the Dodgers like four times as likely yeah, we, as the let, Guardians. Let's just talk about it now. It's ridiculous so, what uh, some of these models have. Hold on. We're going too quickly over a few topics. Real quickly, let me just say two things. One, you made this comment about daytime baseball. I want to double down on that because there was some whinging going on on our text threads about these early games. And I kind of, I mean, I'm the least serious baseball fan, but for me, it's kind of fun to have games going on throughout the day. You can kind of duck over there and see what's happening. And I think I'm hearing some of the same from y'all, even though well, no, I mean, I mean, I just to make a distinction, I think that we were whinging at the time because I think it was one of these like it was during the wild card round when there was two games to be scheduled and they put them at 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. Like so this, nothing, like nothing now where there's like, you know, it's 1 p.m., 4 p.m., 7 p.m. I mean, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, having baseball throughout the day because they have that many games to get in, I think, is a very okay. different situation than only having a couple and putting them during the afternoon as opposed to the evening. Okay. I understand you're whinging better now. Yeah. The other thing I want to ask is I feel like this phenomena of a star pitcher that's supposed to be a sure win bailing spectacularly in playoffs has been a theme in the last couple of years. I would love to actually see the, a, the, a theme <laughs> since the start of time, man. Is that, you know, really? this, is, this is an opportunity I think for us to talk about uh, those biases that we, that we remember these rare events. Um, and I actually I'm being like biased now. Data on it. Okay, good. 
And, and that would be something that I should ask a student to collect this. You know, yeah. we always feel like uh, the great pitchers, the Dodger great pitchers, uh, Verlander. Um, Verlander, Kershaw. Kershaw. Some Yankees, always, some Yankees. To, or, yeah, Garrett or Cole last Astro. year. I mean, I, last Garrett time I get Cole, to bring that yes. up. Garrett Cole. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Y'all told me Garrett, the world said that Garrett Cole was a guarantee. The world said that yeah. game was decided before it was played. Yeah. 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 But you, um, listen, we can also talk about amazing performances by those great pitchers. I can, I can remember many of those too. So mm-hmm. really, uh, our I mean, I, the best offenses against uh, against the best pitching. So you know, and he, and even somebody like Justin Verlander. I mean, this is probably not the first time he's been rocked in a game this season. I mean, these things just kind of happen. It's a very stochastic game, which I think brings us back to yeah. what we kind of wanted to jump ahead to earlier, which is Good. you know that. You know, this is this is kind of the, the, things like this happening is the foundation for my kind of playoffs or a complete coin flip model. You know, and and I mean, I, I there are teams that are stronger than others. Certainly, it's not a complete coin flip, but you know, things like five thirty eight's Elo model currently has the Dodgers to be about ten times more likely of winning the World Series than say the Phillies. And that's and garbage. you have to have right. you have to go really far from that coin flip model to somehow get there. I think it's insane. Even though there's that many games. I mean, so one way to get there is not to go far from the coin flip model, but just to play a lot of games. So just the fact that we're early in the, early in the playoffs, it added, they added, they added a round in the wild card. So if you play enough games, even small margins start stacking up. But that's not the case. That's not what's going yeah. on. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, because presumably they're doing this just simulating the next, like, you know, the next five game series, as well as the two seven game series that will fall for whoever advances. And, I mean, you know, at that level, the Do- you know, the Dodgers should not there's they should not be anywhere near 10 times the probability okay. of another team. Okay. I'm bring up the other thing that's happened this year that we've never seen before and Adi may have some insight cuz maybe you or your student teams have looked at this is that so far, I mean, it's a small sample, maybe we won't know for a number of years because they've extended the wild card round. You know, the Dodgers or the, let's take the Braves. They haven't played in a week. Mm-hmm. The Dodgers are getting rocked. They haven't played in a week. Now, I'm not saying I'm not trying to make it sound like a cause. It's two games. It's two series so far. It's one game. But how do teams perform when one team has just won a series and has been playing and the other team hasn't played in a week? So I'd love to see. We we have some data on this because, you know, in the old days, like right now, they set the World Series date. If the ALCS ends in four and the NLCS goes to seven, and that's happened many years, we can take a look at some data on that. But that was why I wasn't as confident as these odds were saying, because I think there was just uncertainty. How would a week break affect these teams? Mm -hmm. No, and I mean, I I sort of, you know, I I think this is a great example of what Audie was pointing out before, where you kind of remember these kind of, you know, big events or whatever, and it maybe biases your memory too much. But I remember one very distinct one in 2007. The Colorado Rockies went into the World Series like they, they, I think they won something like, you know, 16 or 17 games, like including kind of the regular season to get in there, swept through the entire mm-hmm. National League, and then were literally waiting there for like eight days or something yeah, right. for the Red Sox right. to make it to the World Series. And they looked completely dead once it actually got uh-huh. underway. That's that's a great thing suggestion to look at. But I think I want to make just quick correction. I think it's Houston that's getting rocked right now, not the Dodgers. The Dodgers play tonight. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, no, Verlander is the one getting rocked. Yeah, yeah. Houston, Houston, it's, but it's Houston, not the Dodgers. Houston, did, sorry, but Houston didn't play either. Houston hasn't played for a week either. But yes, good right. point. It's yeah. not the Dodgers. Uh, it's not the Dodgers. And and, her, and Verlander did give up six runs in four innings, which for Verlander is a lot. 
but that's not a highly unlikely uh, a scenario yeah. for even for a great pitcher. It's so just, wait, 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 no, no, wait. hold on. How 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 likely would you make that for the average pitcher? How likely would you make it for Verlander? And there's a very important piece of context here, which is he's pitching against a playoff team. So that's that's vital. So so that's the a, part, by the way, I was normally going to, that's a great point, Kate, because I was going to respond before I didn't just say, well, he's got a 1.85 ERA. He doesn't have a 1.85 ERA against playoff teams. Right. So yeah. what is his, that's the that's the real question. But I would still say, Adi, let's even say his ERA is two and a half or three. Mm-hmm. That's three earned runs in nine innings. He's given up six runs in four innings. That That's right. got to be uh, uh, 2%. Yeah, so actually, I would probably say it's higher than that. Um, uh, particularly the playoff game. But one interesting feature about baseball, which is important, is that runs are uh, they're cumulative. Yeah. I mean, they come in clumps, right? So yeah. in order to score, you've got to load the bases. And then, and then, in other words, the probability, it's not plus on. It's, it's what we would call a plus on clumping process. Now, I don't want to get all geeky on us all here. Um, no, tell us more about plus on clumping process. We, we <laughs> so want to hear more. Yeah, so a, a plus on clumping process essentially um, imagines – so a plus on process has, has – um, occurrences or uh, are are have exponential gaps or sort of memoryless gaps between the events so in other words if you've waited um, a certain amount of time to, uh, before the next occurrence then that that is is you can just forget it it doesn't matter um, and it's a it's a wonderful process that models lots and lots of things um, and we see them we see them everywhere and obviously in epidemiology and disease modeling you see Poisson processes um, in fact Adi, in Adi, doctor, give us give us one more pass at the memoryless property of Poisson. Oh, so soccer is a great time where they use Poisson as a as a uh, distribution for the number for the number of goals scored. So in other words, if you've if you've gone five minutes without a goal, it doesn't make the next minute any more likely than if you haven't gone if you've gone say ten minutes without a goal or or one minute without a goal. That's mm-hmm. what it means to be memoryless. So what's happened mm-hmm. in the past can be forgotten, and only the current state matters, and mm-hmm. not 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 the history of how how long it got there. Okay. Um, okay. It's a it's a it's a conventional and very important model in so much uh, of of modeling of all kinds. Um, I think we'd all agree on that. The Poisson clumping process imagines that uh, the the there is a a clump which um, which has a certain size, and the clumps themselves are Poisson, but the number of occurrences that occur in each clump okay. has a, a different distribution. And the, so and, the, and the Poissonness of the clumps is what makes it Poisson, as opposed to. You might have thought this is just autocorrelation or something. There's just that's right. Okay. What's actually interesting about Verlander, by the way, just so you know, I'm looking at his stats. His Back to career, baseball. His well, his career and postseason stats are almost identical in that his postseason ERA is 3.40 with a whip of 1.07. And his career stats are his ERA is 3.24 with a whip of 1.12. So he's he, you know, what's the expression? He is who we thought he was. Um he's a very, 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 very good Hall of Fame-like pitcher in yeah, the I, regular season. And he's a very, very, very good matter of fact. You could argue that the fact that his stats are the same in the postseason on those measures is actually quite impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I but it's almost, I think, secondarily. I mean, yes, it's impressive he continues to be his dominant self in the postseason. He also is given the number of opportunities that such that, I mean, the way we see a large variance between postseason and regular season outcomes for most baseball players is they just didn't, haven't had a lot of 
lot of opportunities in the postseason. And so you get crazy variants just on their numbers, you know, okay. like, you know, whereas yes, Verlander yes. has been in the playoffs for like 20 years now or something, you know, <laughs> ridiculous like that. Uh, in terms of sample sizes, he's got one of the have to have one of the largest. He has a season worth. He has a season worth of postseason appearances. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's super impressive. Guys, before we run too quickly into the division series, What's your take on the wild card series? And let's begin with the fact that we had a series and not a game. And I, I just love that it was two of three as opposed to one. One always just seemed crazy to me. Uh, so now we have a proper series, short, appropriate. What yeah. did y'all think about? What did y'all think about the whole round? So let me just jump in. I think. I mean, one of the things you have to recognize is the consequences of not winning the division is bad. Mm-hmm. So the Mets fall like the Mets. Yeah, you don't yeah, have to tell they, the Mets they got that. knocked out, and it was you know this is a terrible disappointment. Um, to so many Mets fans out there, which I don't really care. But anyway, yeah, I think we're both <laughs> fine with the fact that the third division winner isn't treated the same as the top two division winners. That's cool. I like that too. Um, it's kind of like it rewards the teams that dominated and they get a buy. And I, I like that. I think it's a great feature, you know, borrowed, if you will, from, from other sports, but it's a great feature. Uh, two- Adi, it's exactly, by the way, up until a year ago or two years ago, that's exactly the NFL model. Let's be clear. Yeah. The top two teams got a buy. Three played six, four played five. That's it. That's the NFL's postseason until they added a seventh team. So, so, but of course, uh, a two out of three series is just a, anything can possibly go. Um, you know, and uh, teams. Got I mean, it's less stochastic than a one out of one series, but yeah, it is certainly. But not still very, t- you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, like just little runs and stuff like that, you know, can have a huge influence. Anything interesting from the four series that we saw? I mean, Especially you know, interesting or that you're excited about the one that was surprising. The most surpri- yeah. The one that was most surprising to me. I mean, the Phillies wasn't that surprising to me at least um, because the, the Phillies have two top line frontline pitchers and that's what can happen in a short series. I think the one that was surprising to me the most was actually the Mariners over the Blue Jays. I thought the Blue mm-hmm. Jays were a very, very, very good and dangerous mm-hmm. team. And they are, they lost a three game series. It happens. But I'm just commenting, that was the one that I guess surprised me the most. Well, not that they lost the series, but they completely gave away went game three, right? Weren't they up right. by a lot? Yeah. And the Mariners came back on that thing? They were up by seven runs in the game. They were up eight to one in the game final. Two. It was game ten two of the series. Game two. And they were up, t- uh, oh, they lost okay. ten to nine. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is crazy. But they don't have much pitching. You have to recognize that Blue Jays' success is on their hitting. Um, and I think the Phillies, by the way, encountered point to your Verlander comment. Billy's dominated because of their top pitchers putting in top performances. Yeah. So guys, we're going to have a relatively short first quarter here. And I want to hear a little bit about the series that we're into now. Talk about the four division series. Give give us a comment or an observation or question about each of the four series we have in front of us. Should you start or I should start Eric about our Yankees? What's the story? We haven't had a, I don't think we've gotten together to, to uh, post uh, judgment day. Um, so I don't know, uh, is, is, is it to me, when I think about the Yankee series, um, the, the key, I'm going to throw this out. My key is going to be a, a hitter like Stanton because judge contributed so much to the Yankees that if, if you just need more in a playoff series than one person and uh, historically that's, that's, you know, Stanton has been a great hitter when he comes around and if we get judge and Stanton doing their thing, that's that you'll see the Yankees move on. If not, they're out in one round. I think it comes down to, you know, again, it comes down to pitching. And so, you know, I think you started off, Cade, is uh, Garrett Cole's pitching tonight. 
We're not going to have long to find out if he can <laughs> really deliver in the postseason. But the Yankees have, you know, I trust Severino. And I tr- look, I like their big three. I like uh, Cole. I like Severino. And I like Cortez. I like that. And then with uh, many other guys able to pitch. So I like the Yankees in the series. Let um, me just say that they're going against the Cleveland Guardians. And Cleveland yeah. ought to be. They ought to be the Wharton Moneyball team. Somehow the Yankees is the Wharton Moneyball team. But the Guardians. No, 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 not, not if I have anything to say about it. But <laughs> By but I, rights, it would, be the, it would be the Guardians because. You know, the A's are famous for their money ball, but they just haven't had the success that the Guardians have. Year in, year out, this team is in the playoffs with a fraction of the payroll. They have an incredibly forward-thinking, analytic, great culture, staff, or, uh, leadership organization. They we spent some time with those guys, and they're absolutely spectacular. And they were within, you know, what, an out, an extra inning? of finally getting their World Series against the Cubs a few years ago. I can't help but pull for those guys. Nothing against you guys, but goodness, I'm always pulling for the Guardians. I'm glad to see them come through the wild card. And, of course, soon-to-be Wharton owner. You know, our friend David Blitzer. David Blitzer uh, is a minority owner at the moment, but has a call option to become the majority owner. So that'll be, you know, he'll only uh, be part of the Sixers, the Devils, the Crystal Palace, and now the Guardians. It's one of the few organizations that he's going to find already quite sophisticated when he goes in there. Harder to improve on the margins that he's usually able to improve. All right, that's one series. There are three other ones. Give us some quick comments around. Well, the I mean, I, I think uh, for several of the other series that you know, I kind of have my what I have my eye on in most cases is these kind of underdog stories because we do again have some real challenges to my coin flip model here, you know, specifically the Padres going up against the Dodgers, anybody going up against the Dodgers. So, I mean, I yeah. think. You know, what happens when one of these dominant teams like the historically dominant teams like the Dodgers hits a short playoff series? You are. I I think the the, the Padres are essentially going to have to have standout pitching performances such like Musgrove gave them against the Mets to to sort of get through that. Basically, let's just note the difference in that lineup. It's just an absolute buzzsaw. And I mean, the regular season record bears that out. The Dodgers won yeah. 22 more games than the Padres did. If this were football, I would say, come on, these are rivals. There's a lot of hate there. The Padres are going to be up for it. Anything could happen. Does that apply at all to baseball? Or is it like, nope, guys, sorry. Is I think, that- I mean, I think there is sort of, I mean, certainly I would join Eric and probably arguing for some kind of momentum thing. I think these, you know, the, as we, to do we were all in favor of these buys because it makes winning the division important and rewards the kind of better division winners but there is this idea now that like these teams coming in these wild card teams coming in are hotter i mean they they obviously have one more recently you know to the extent that pitching or hitting kind of like you lose kind of any of that sort of dynamic with a large layoff i think that's something that kind of maybe works against the most dominant teams in this new playoff structure um whether it's enough to kind of, you know, counter counterbalance the fact we'll that find out over time and, on a team. Yeah, we'll find out over time. And the other so, just quick thing that interests me as well is, is there and this is something Adi, I'd love if you guys dig into the data. Let's imagine that the Mariners hold on and beat the Astros. We don't know that they will. Does that raise the probability that tonight the Padres or the Guardians win? Because they look around and say, hey, wait a second here. The Phillies row team, they won. I know you guys are nodding no, but I don't. look. You're nodding no, but what does the data say? There is a psychology. Cade, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong here, but there is a psychology here that would say that it could impact it. I I don't have any data. You know, I have to say, I'm going to. If I think back in history, 
what has how often has a super dominant team entered the playoffs and how have they done and uh and i think you don't have to go far to find super dominant team the yankees when they won 125 games across the season they rolled through the playoffs yeah. but the mariners 2018 when they red sox did as well but there's cases on the other side yeah and so you know the, the mariners had an all-time you know one of the highest greatest season they got wiped out in the first round well, the Mariners are still going. The other two series are the Mariners and the Astros. That's the one where the Astros are getting rocked, where Landers getting rocked early as we're recording this. And then, of course, just as we came on air, the wild card winning Phillies nicked the late last weekend division winning Mets. Um, I mean, Braves. Braves. And uh, we've got those two. I want to ask one question on the way out of here, Q1. Four division series. Four wild card team, wild card round winners in there. How many wild card teams emerge from this division round? You have to pick a number zero to four. Everybody pick a number. Eric says two. Shane I'm going with two. One. Shane says one. Well, it's a tricky business because I would have said three before the oh my god. The, the fact that the Phillies already won one game and they're up, and the Mariners. You were going to say three wild card team winners out of the four? No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Three division. I would have said one. And and now it's hard to move away from one slightly because of the the upset that one game victory is huge. And uh, in a in a seven game series, and that's and why I said two. Series. I would have five said one if Kate had asked me before. If Kate had asked me at one o'clock today, I would have said one. But I'm a Bayesian. I'm a two now. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm have to go with the Bayesian. Who? How can you not be a Bayesian? Well, that's, exactly. That's this is I'm, data. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going two also, which ironically means three of us go with the coin flip model, and the coin flip theorists goes well, with one well, i honestly I, I just want to present a counter example I, I mean because i'm terrible at betting these types of things yeah, let, so let me just let me go let me go the other way before i'm be careful yeah. the the dodgers and the yankees are the most overwhelming favorites um so if one would argue that that you should get about one and a half out of those two um then all you takes one and the, the problem is, is the right estimate is something like uh 2.3 or something so we got a rounding me to an integer yeah. going um, in the yankees over two. guardians was more overwhelming than the uh Astros no 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 that, uh oh that's true uh um uh i'm not really sure but i, I think the, yes, shane i saw the betting odds they were all about there were three that were about plus 200 so they were all about the same okay all right, guys. Well, we're in the thick of it now. It's going to be a fun next month or so, already providing some good interest in the postseason for Major League Baseball. We have three quarters yet to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. We're going to pick up an extra interview in this quarter. We're going to talk to Lauren Poe here momentarily. Lauren is a developer with ESPN. We've got the whole crew in here for it via Zoom. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. This is Cade Massey. You guys can jump into the conversation. We're talking to people all week long in a couple of ways. You can hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. We follow our guests. We tweet about the world of sports, sports analytics. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up with ideas, complaints, love, whatever you got. You can also send us email. We have a mailbag of sorts via email. The address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We read everything you send us. We love to hear from you. We get as much of it as possible on the air. 
Okay, rolling out of Q1, talk some baseball, playoff baseball. We've got a lot of football and a few other topics to talk about over the next hour to help us with some of that and to tell us about her world. We are delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time, Lauren Poe. Lauren, good afternoon to you. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hi, thanks for having me. Lauren, we're delighted to have you. Audience, Lauren is a developer for ESPN Sports Analytics team. That team is responsible for metrics like total QBR, power indices for various sports, including one of our favorites, football's FPI. Lauren has a degree in mathematics from OU, the University of Oklahoma. She worked as a math teacher before moving to ESPN. I think she moved to ESPN in 2013. Um, And she is calling us, zooming in from Bristol. We speak to some ESPN folks, and they're always in places like Northern Virginia or Columbia, Missouri. We don't often get to be at the worldwide headquarters itself. So that's just an extra bonus for us. Lauren, how are things up in Connecticut this afternoon? Lovely. I actually, I I was just telling somebody else that right now in Connecticut, over the next two weeks or so, the foliage is just going to be peak fall. Yes. It's funny you say that. We've got a guest in the next couple of weeks to talk to us about foliage. It seems like there's some forecasting going on there. We're going to want to hear about it. Adi didn't know. Adi just got I'm I'm actually driving up to, to Cambridge, Massachusetts on uh friday so i'm maybe looking to spend a little extra time in connecticut on the way up sounds fun yeah that's great it's going to be a beautiful drive yeah those of us in texas and california watched monday night or sunday night football the baltimore game people were in jackets and coats and it looked like the real thing which is a foreign idea to us but that's not what we're here to talk with lauren about lauren tell us well one tell the world what it means to be a developer so you're an esp analytics big group doing lots of cool things Super impressed. We lean on them. We love the work. You've made a big difference in the world of sports watching, I believe. But what is your role in particular? What does it mean to be a developer? Well, it, it means a few different things. I do several different things depending on the day and the season. So uh, one of my main roles on our team is to write our simulations code. Um, if you think about, you know, we generate these team ratings or player ratings. We have game predictions that are, you know, based off of those ratings. And then we ultimately want to simulate an entire season, uh, usually 20,000 times and provide projections for that. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I write all of that simulations code. A lot of the time we need those things to run really fast because we, we want those updated numbers as games are happening live on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, We might want to incorporate live win probability into those projections. So as you know, a snap of football is played, we can adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just need them to be really, really fast. So, so that's how I spend a lot of my days. This small detail here, I'm not enough of a coder to know this stuff. But that, does that mean you're, you're, you're putting things to work on parallel processors, parallel machines to, to, so they don't have to wait for one to finish before the next one goes 20,000 times? Exactly. That, that's one of the main things that I've, I've done to speed things up is parallelization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So what's an example of one of your favorite projects? You've been there a while now. What's one of the, what's one of your favorite projects in your historical portfolio? Oh, that's really tough. I will say uh, I spent a lot of time. This was actually before I moved to the sports analytics team when I was still in the stats and analysis department at ESPN. Um, you know, we, we, we generate a lot of our own data in-house and we're really proud of that, but we also work with third-party providers. Uh, and so we'll work with, you know, other people who are tracking uh, additional 
data points that you can't really extrapolate from a regular college football box score, for example. So, um, you know, how many pass rushers were there were, you know, um, yards after contact, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. every year, you know, that provider could change. And so uh, I learned a lot about football one year when we were incorporating a new data provider uh, and translating all of that new data to line up with our old data, right? Uh, Right. Just to make all of that kind of make sense together since, you know, we didn't want to lose all of that historical data. So that was, that was when I learned a lot, you know, spent a lot of time watching like the X's and O's. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's impressive. I wouldn't have known that that would have been what is involved in making that transformation. It sounds like it might've been some real detailed matching of variable names, but to, that, to, that, that you had to go actually learn more about football is interesting. Lauren, how do y'all decide? I, th- I think if I'm not mistaken, y'all made a big change to FBI, either with the NFL or with college this year, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So can you speak about that? Or more generally, can you talk about how you evaluate the models, the SIMs or whatever it is? How do you know when you need to improve? Where do you get feedback from? Who decides the way it's run? Just what does that process look like? You guys are kicking out these models that actually make a difference. People talk about them, to, to, you know, broadcasters put them on the screen. People use them in their arguments. What is the, what's the process look like? What's the sausage making look like? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it depends. We get a lot of feedback internally from uh, subject matter experts that, that work on shows or that work with talent or work with former players. Mm-hmm. Um, we take all of that into consideration. We look at how other models are performing. We, we look at how we compare with, you know, Vegas um, and we, and it depends on, on what our goal is, you know, do we want to beat Vegas? Do we want to be able to have, you know, a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, visibility on, on what goes into it and, and easily translatable. Right. Transparency. Uh Transparency. Uh Thank you. Uh Um, and so uh, one thing with college football that we're really proud of this year is we're actually, in, in terms of mean squared error, uh, we are number one behind all of Vegas uh, opening closing lines. Um, okay. So hold on. So let's talk about that. You're talking about, now you're just talking about picking games. So you've got a power index in college football. It puts a number on every team. You can infer the prediction from those numbers and something for home field advantage. So with every game, you have a precise prediction that falls out of your model and you compare how that does versus reality and how that performance compares to other models. And you're saying your best of your comparison group, your best, except for the betting line, which is really tough to beat. All right. Exactly. So, wait, wait, hold on a second. Can I just ask what, what are you testing? You're looking at the difference. Assume observed score you're... minus predicted score. Yeah. yeah. You get the difference yeah. and score different error. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so let's 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 jump into some of the football itself, if you can. Let's 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 talk about college football with Lauren. She is deep in it. Um, also, she comes by it honestly. It sounds like she went to a little school north of the Red River. Lauren, you're, where are you from originally? I am from a town uh, called Ada, Oklahoma. It's a very small mm-hmm. town in southeastern Oklahoma. Uh, and then I went to the University of Oklahoma. Um, I was on the Palm Squad is what we call wow. it there. It's like a yeah. dance team. Yeah. So I got to travel um, to all of the games and see some some really cool football up close. 
That's great. Kate, of all the football games we could <laughs> talk about, we're not going to talk about A&M versus Alabama. Another is the second game Alabama should have lost. You want to talk about the 49 to nothing shellacking Texas put on I, Oklahoma? I, I, I wasn't going to bring it up. I, I, I wasn't going to bring it up. You said Red River. That's the Isn't that the, isn't that the game, the Red River talk, Classic? I'm I don't even about, know. I'm talking about where she's from. Why would I bring up that game? With this <laughs> All right, well, I brought it up for you. There we go. It, it she's look, having it a bad the territory. It's fine. She's having, she's having a bad week, guys. Come on, man. Uh, yeah, also, that was that was a game where I normally would – I just couldn't turn it off. I had I had to watch every snap oh. and understand what was going on. Lauren, I that's pathological. I mean, I've been through some whippings before, and that one was just. Believe me, I kept on every play. I'm a, I'm a Longhorn alum, and I watched it with my Longhorn mm-hmm. alum uh, sisters, and it was quite enjoyable. But we've been on the other side of that one for too many years to gloat too much. By the way, you guys have come through one of the most impressive softball series seasons and a couple in a row i mean if we're gonna we're gonna talk smack about the sooner football right now let's give them some props for the softball my gosh that's been absolutely incredible and by the way women's softball we're in the middle of baseball season at the playoffs and it's fantastic but i mean women's softball is pretty compelling stuff and i think they have it kind of calibrated just right it's good entertainment but for the fact that the sooners seem to walk away with it all the time these days yeah that that is much more enjoyable these days i actually uh saw online you know a few fans were hoping jordy ball could just come play quarterback yeah right that would have been exactly anything anything would have been an improvement all right so where are we on the college football forecast right now we walk into the season everyone says there's a big three and there's kind of a, a mysterious mass after the big three what are your numbers saying about the probabilities for those big three and who What's the next category of teams and what are the probabilities that one of those teams emerge? What's the probability for each of them emerging as the fourth? Yeah. So right now we kind of have Ohio state and Alabama at the top in terms of chance to make the playoff. I think it's obvious why. Uh, And then the the next two below that on this kind of a second tier would be Georgia and Clemson. So Lauren, hold on. Already you're surprising me a little bit that Georgia is more in a second tier with Clemson than it is within the first tier with Alabama and Ohio State. And by the way, what has Alabama done to deserve being a tier above Georgia? Well, I think that's a really good question. Uh, part of part of the reason is that uh, you have to remember that these projections are projecting out. Yeah. Uh, so it still thinks that Alabama has a better chance to win the yeah. SEC, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the most likely SEC title matchup would be Alabama, Georgia. Yeah. Uh, it seems very likely that they'll both be in a very good position heading into that game. So it's not unlikely that both of those teams would make the playoff. We've seen that before, yeah. uh, but this just more simulations have Alabama winning the SEC. Yep. It, you, you might think you might think it's, it could be Tennessee. I think your models like Tennessee um, more than they're like in Ole Miss and Mississippi state, meaning the Georgia's competition coming out of the East might be stiffer than Alabama's competition coming out of the West. Um, all right. One question that we kicked around preseason, and you may not have this one at your fingertips, but it would be interesting to know the likelihood of all three of those big favorites. It's less so the clear favorites in your model, but the way people talk about it, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio state are kind of shoe ends for the playoff. And we said from early on, that's not likely. I mean, they may be the three most likely, but the fact that the, prospect of all three of them making it is actually less likely than not 
do you have that number around? I know that's the kind of joint probability that may not just be sitting there for you, but we'd be curious to know what your models are saying about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, that, this is a question we get uh, regularly. Um, so that, that's actually a, a very likely uh, top three. I think just off the top of uh, this, I think I've got a 23% chance that we have all three of those teams in the playoff. And when I said tiers, I mean, this is all relative, right? I mean, Ohio State and Alabama are at 80% chance, and then Georgia is at a 67% chance, and right. at a 50. So these are still very likely numbers. Wait, wait, hold on a second. You said Georgia, uh, and, and you have 80, 80, and 0.67. If I multiply those straight across, I'm looking at... The no, I thought you said, said 80.67 and 50%. Correct. They're not oh, independent, Adi. Okay. But they're and also they're not, not independent. And they're also yeah. not independent events. So. Yeah. yeah, definitely not. Well, a couple of things. One, 23%. So three to one against all yeah. three of them making it, even though they're the most likely trifecta, three to one against all three of them making it. The other thing you're saying, which is a, a, a subplot that's emerging, is that Clemson is getting sneaking up on that top tier as they've shown themselves stronger and stronger this season they are separating to some extent from the others that were competing for that fourth most likely spot. And they don't face that much. They, they don't have that much in front of them. Typical dadgum ACC schedule, not a whole lot going on. They are going to have to go to Notre Dame. They play Notre Dame. I think it's in South Bend and maybe there's more strength there, but especially the title game, the ACC title game is going to be a joke. There's nobody in the coastal, all the competitions in the Atlantic. If Clemson comes out of the Atlantic, they're probably going to walk in the, in the title game. So it's a, it's yeah, a little Clemson's, disappointing. It is. I, I will say like Clemson is the, is the, the most likely conference champion of all teams. They, they do have the easiest path. I think you, you mean not just the most likely in the ACC. You're saying of all the conferences, they're the biggest favorite to win their conference. Correct. What is their probability and what's the next highest? They're at a 77% chance to win the ACC. And then Ohio State is next with a 65% chance to win the Big Ten. Okay. 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 Um, all right, Lauren, that's all helpful and cool. And we love looking at that stuff as it comes out every week. Tell us, we need to let you go, but tell us what what's next for you. Like, what are you working on right now? It, maybe not something that's going to come out next week, but maybe next year. Like, what's the frontier that you're working on or your team is working on right now? One thing that I'm really excited to be working on is a concept uh, like warm sims for college football. So right now, uh, our FPI values, which is the team rating, that's a static value that's in our simulations. So in every sim, let's say UCLA is a really good example. You know, UCLA is 30th in FPI right now. So in every simulation, they're 30th in FPI. So even when they win out and win the Pac-12, they're still 30th in FPI. And what I would like to do, and one thing we're looking at is sampling so that we can, each simulation, we would draw UCLA's actual team strength. In some sims, they'd be at their higher end. In some sims, they'd be at their floor. Uh, and I, I think that would get us more interesting scenarios when we're looking at, uh, you know, these, you know, if they do win out. Right now, if they win out and they win the Pac-12, our model has them at just like a 23% chance to make the playoff. Well, that's not probably not right, you know, because if they went out and they win the Pac-12, they're they're better than 30th. Right, right, right. So, no, Lauren, so we, we account for that. Yeah, we we encourage you strongly in that direction. In fact, we got into a little debate a few weeks ago 
on ex- the, the right way to do that. There's a few different ways you can go about it, but it does seem really important to have that kind of non-stationarity in the model because we know that's well, you're, you're simulating, you're supposedly simulating an actual season. We know there's all kinds of non-stationarity in the season. So it needs to make its way in simulation. And one, one consequence of keeping everything fixed is that there's less variance. There's less variance in the outcomes than there should be. Um, and, you know, as you know, one of the big biases people have in the world is just forecasting less variance than there actually is. And so models should work against that and put a counterbalance to that. And some of our models are not doing it. So we'll look forward to seeing what you come up with there. It's certainly a more complex thing to work on. Definitely. Thank you. Yeah. Lauren, um, thanks for making time for us, man. Um, Keep up the great work. We love what you guys do. And it's nice to get a chance to visit with you. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's good. Good talk. Absolutely. Lauren Poe, developer for ESPN Sports Analytics Team, working on any number of tools and analytics that you guys are reading about. She has been there since 2013 after spending some time down in the great state of Oklahoma. All right. Thank you, Lauren. Gentlemen, we've got a few minutes before we're done with Q2. We've got, I don't know, 11, 12 minutes, something like that. We've been talking a little bit about college football with Lauren. Um, any other interesting observations on the college football front? We'll maybe save the NFL for Q3, but I don't know. I had a pretty good weekend watching college football. How about you guys? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, with what Lauren had to say, it's, it's exciting to hear she wants to become a Bayesian. She, uh, you know, wants to, you know, be in our simulations going forward, not just simulating, assuming you have a fixed known model right. into the future, but actually simulating kind of the uncertainty in your parameters and propagating that uncertainty forward into your predictions. And I, you know, I mean, I think that's, you know, kind of a, cla- you know, sort of a classic contribute, you know, a, a big contribution of kind of taking a little bit more of a, a Bayesian viewpoint um, towards your modeling. Well, hold on a second. It, it, just, let me just, I mean, I just is that really that Bayesian? I mean, or is that just using the data you've seen from previous seasons to estimate the parameter uncertainties? I mean, at a certain point you gotta make something about some unknown parameters. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, you know, hyperparameters say, or something. No, the frequent uh, a non-Bayesian could also say, for example, take the sampling yeah. distribution somehow of their parameters and propagate. They never do. They, they don't though. I mean, I guess I'm representing the kind of classical frequentist prediction exercise, which would be you know, now that you've got the parameters, your models, fix them at their optimal kind of value and just use that value when you simulate for it. I mean, that's, you know, the, what we call the parametric bootstrap is I'm describing essentially the parametric bootstrap, which I think is kind of the usual sort of frequentist way of simulating these things. So certainly you don't have to be a Bayesian and have a posterior distribution to propagate for the uncertainty of parameters. It just seems like that's the kind of most, the, the biggest kind of way in which people do do that. In if practice, I, I, I'm, since we're here, I will try to revisit this conversation we had a couple of weeks ago to pin this down because it does, it does seem really important. And, and the fact that we just talked with ESPN and and about this methodology speaks to how important it is. Mm-hmm. And simulations are things that increasingly people are doing on you know in the basements of their own home. This is a common method, and a lot of folks aren't getting it right. So what we're talking about is needing to bake in. I think we're talking about two different things, actually. One is at the start of the season, you don't know for sure what the strength of that team is. You've got an estimate, but you're uncertain about that. And that, and presumably your simulation should reflect that uncertainty. The second thing, the second source of variance here is that 
those numbers change over the course of the season. And, and as Lauren was just talking about, if you're going to, if you find in one of your simulations that your team wins the conference and it ended up better than you thought it was going to be for on average and the, it ought to reflect that. So what is the best way for the lay person out there running their simulations or the professional organizations building their simulations? What's the best way to capture those two sources of uncertainty in these sims? This is well, actually, I, I, I'd claim that I, this I is take, really, take... I'd claim that this is actually really important. And I have claimed for years on this show, this is what, even if Massey Peabody's NFL model has not really, has lost its edge on the market, we've got the better sim. And we've still got an edge in college football, but we've always had this in our model. Oh, not... What's... Go ahead. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just sort of say, I think the attractiveness of taking a Bayesian perspective is that the fundamental kind of, concept underlying that is that you treat the parameters like these team abilities as random variables that have a whole distribution of values not some single known you know kind of unknown true certain single value then that kind of integrates in both the sort of idea that at the start of the season of course you have uncertainty because it's a whole distribution so you should try and build some kind of you know, prior for that. And then as data accumulates, you update that distribution's values. And so, I mean, it, it's not the only framework for thinking about that uncertainty, but it is a, cohe- a co- very coherent way of doing yep. it. Yep. So I just wanted to add to build on what Adi said earlier. So while I'm as Bayesian as they come, um, I do many things that are frequentist, meaning I estimate parameters, right? But the thing is, frequentists know how to do this, too, in the sense that, you know, there isn't an FPI. There's an estimate of the FPI. Let's call that for the moment theta hat. And then there's a standard error of that estimate. And this is what frequentists know how to do. So if you have data on college football games and outcomes, let's say you do what's called maximum likelihood estimation. You find the values of the team strengths, the FPIs, that maximize the data you observed. But then there's what's called the curvature around the mode, which is the degree of uncertainty. That's an estimate of the standard error. Every simulation I've ever done in my life, whether I've been Bayesian or frequentist, when I'm Bayesian, I do what Shane suggests, which is I sample from the posterior and then I simulate data sets. And I do this a bunch of times when I'm frequentist and I've got an estimate, I've got a standard error of that estimate. I also sample theta hats from that distribution and then simulate forward. And so that's a different... In, 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 that, in that case, you're doing the exact same. For most standard models, they'd almost like You're doing the exact yeah, same yeah. thing. You're just calling it a theta instead of a theta hat. No. Yeah, so let, me, let me just add a couple of things, because when I when I started graduate school um, the at Stanford in the, in the late 80s, there was a uh, it was still a remnant of a fight between the Bayesians and the frequentists. And now, you know, <laughs> 35 years later, that is almost gone. And one of the reasons why is that is that the Bayesians of the early Bayesians were very hard, subjective priors, and they rolled those in in a very deep way into their simulation, if you will. So getting back to your theta hat, our theta hat in a frequency perspective for FPI might have a normal distribution with some standard error. Um, but if you have a hard prior on, on, the, on that FBI, it says that it, that theta hat that you're observing is highly unlikely according to that prior. You're going to push far away from it despite right. it being a maximum yeah. unlikely that's been. And we don't really do that anymore. And the Bayesian world doesn't doesn't take these like really hard expert priors in, 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 in some cases. Oh, they do. I mean, in, in, ca- yeah. in cases where you need them, uh, you, it's it's still, again, the coherent framework for incorporating real prior information if you have it. Yep. But if you right. don't have it, you yeah. just basically are 
falling back on the kind of traditional statistical modeling assumptions. And you will kind of, you know, again, if you're sampling from your MLE plus or minus two times the standard error, then you're probably, you know, that's going to agree with what the Bayesian posterior distribution is in a lot of models as well. It's just, again, that idea of uh, that idea of actually exploring the uncertainty, like propagating that uncertainty forward in predictions. Certainly, I think it came, you know, frequentists have a version of it, but the Bayesian one is kind of a more coherent probability model. Comment on the practical nature of why it matters. If you think about on the X, just 10 seconds, if you think about on the X axis, a team's strength, and you think about on the Y axis, the probability of winning, it's not a line. Typically, it looks like an S-shaped curve. So actually, if you think about moving a certain distance to the right and to the left, they're asymmetric effects, especially at the higher end of the distribution, the lower end of the distribution. So you say, what does it matter? If a team's FPI goes from this to this or this to this, doesn't it average out? And the answer is it doesn't. So that's the other part about this simulation is it won't just add uncertainty, which you talked about, Caden, when we were interviewing Lauren, but actually the performance will differ because a team moving up the distribution and down the distribution does not have symmetric effects. So I'm really interested to see the impact that this has on their simulated outcomes. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask you one more methodological question because the conversation so far has been about capturing the uncertainty at the beginning of the season. It hasn't said as much about how you incorporate non-stationarity going forward. Whatever you believe their power to be um, at the beginning of the year, you're not just updating with the assumption that it's fixed. You're evolving over time. And so a sim, a proper sim is going to, you're going to sim the outcome of a game, but then you've got to update your estimate of the underlying power in some way. So what, well, what, what's the recommendation there? Well, this is where, uh, uh, this is where the data is going to get minimal because you just don't have much data to really estimate a, a non-stationarity parameter um, properly. And so you're going to have to fall back on something. It's going to have to be built from historical data. It might just be a prior. It might just be an assumption um, that says, this is what we're going to do. And that's that. Um, and, 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 it's, and this is where Bayesian is very powerful because it actually allows you to build this in without having that much observations and still get it because it starts with your basic sense of the, of the game. Yeah. Well, buddy, but let me make sure I understand what you're, I think you're saying, look, you've, you get an estimate. You thought Alabama was plus 30 before they played their first game. They've played four five, six games now based on those data, given the outcomes, you're going to change that. You're going to update. Mm-hmm. You're saying you've got to have some model that tells you how much to update it given the outcome. And That's you right. may or may not have the data for that. It may be based on something structural or something Bayesian, but you're going to have to have some method that says, okay, we thought we were unsure. We recognized we were unsure at the start of the season. They were plus 30 after six games. We think that they're plus 32 or plus 27, depending on whatever our updating model is, but you've got to build that updating. You've got to build that dynamic thing in. Yep. You got to make some decisions. <laughs> and I mean, okay. again, through the po- through posterior updating, the Bayesian kind of formulation gives you kind of a sort of automated guidance and how to and how to do that. Again, you can you know also kind of model that kind of trend over time more directly as well, and not and not do it from a Bayesian perspective. And I just want to I want to acknowledge that what we're ultimately looking for is that you know historically the difference between your beliefs at the start of the season and the outcomes. You can look at that difference and that's, that's basically the era in your forecast. And you can look at what that distribution of era has been historically. You want to build a SIM 
that recaptures that error. You want to basically make sure that your sim is making mistakes in the same direction and at the same magnitude that historically you've made. That's the mm-hmm. big challenge. Yep. You've got to get one way or another by, by, by cook or by granny. You've got to find a way that your model is airing, you know, in a way that's calibrated for historical errors. Assuming that's stable over time. <laughs> that's okay. No, right. Of course. And you know, that is a big assumption, but it's probably a reasonable assumption. And my God, everything else we've talked about is hard enough. So let's not, let's not worry about that one. Well, that was kind of an extended geeky PSA. There might be six people still listening to this quarter, but let me say those six people are going to write better Sims now. So there is that going for them. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics. We're rolling into the second hour now. We're going to do an open segment here in Q3, and then we've got an interview somewhat COVID-related in Q4. We're going to talk about technology, wastewater monitoring, forecasts. have a couple of experts from that world in Q4. Q3 is open. I want to say that we had a rather animated conversation on break between Q2 and Q3. Guys, at the very end, as Eric was laying down the law, I was thinking about that meme. You know that meme where the two guys are screaming at each other back and forth? It's from some TV show. They've got mustaches. and things. It's a famous meme. They're always People are putting different debates on that. That's what that felt like for the first time. And Eric was like, the theta hat has to move. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I just want, I want to reflect that I'm the reasonable guy in those in that meme. <laughs> yeah, is that right? <laughs> whichever, whichever one of those guys is the reasonable guy, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm not sure there's anybody looking real good in that meme. Um, guys, uh, we haven't yet talked about NFL. Um, I, I want to say that the, the Ravens had, they finally won a game. I mean, watching Ravens football is like watching Texas football for the last 10 years. It's like every game is just a complete meat grinder torture fest. I mean, every game is a drama. They're drama. They're just ridiculous. And this was yet another one. Finally, the privilege of a man who doesn't watch enough Broncos games, because, well, I mean, there are teams true. that are way more unwatchable than the Ravens. I suppose, but at least then your expectations are in check and you're not emotionally twisted and turned. I mean, this is just, this is, I mean, the thing, the similarities between the Ravens experience and the Longhorns experience up until this last weekend have been striking, but the Ravens finally got one. But interestingly, they had one of these, go for the touchdown, go for fourth down or kick a field goal moments that perfectly mirrored what happened the week before. And Harbaugh caught so much shit for it. Didn't work out. They didn't go for it this time. Almost identical. All the models say, go for it. Kick the field goal to go up six with like a minute and a half left or whatever it was. Maybe it was more than that, two, 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 three minutes. And it almost came back to bite them. Didn't quite, but the, the remind me who they're playing the Bengals get the ball yeah. to go down the field they score the go-ahead touchdown going up by one with just about a minute left and then happily the Ravens have the best kicker in the NFL happily they have Lamar Jackson who deserves a ton of credit for that mm-hmm. drive and they got him down there and that decision didn't bite him but it was you know again just kind of analytics drama Harbaugh's no, I, I feel like it's boy. like a weekly thing that there's like these controversial fourth downs. Like enough co- coaches have kind of bought into taking chances more that we have like kind of like, and this is because of analytics discussion. 
in many football games every week. And it frustrates me that we see like a lot of these fourth down decisions, which are kind of probably appropriate at the time. And then, but unfortunately see them coupled with some of the worst play call. Like I, my, I'm so (laughs) triggered every week by not the decision to go for it on fourth down or to go for a two point conversion. When most people would go for a one point conversion, it's the, you do that. And then you have the most like unintelligible play call. So like you remember like to the, are you four, fourth to the, and inches and you, you're in shotgun. And you're referring to the Raiders throwing a 50 yard pass on fourth and one at the end of the game. Are you referring to the play as, call as a great the example, Raiders as a fantastic of, example? Yeah. Yeah. That was just a, t- it was a terrible play call. And, you know, the part that also surprised me in that same game with the Raiders and, and I don't know, maybe you guys have looked at this. They went for two down 30 to 29 with four minutes and 27 seconds yeah. left. And so I'm thinking, you know, let's say you're successful for two. What makes you think anyway that the Chiefs aren't just going to drive down the field and score? It just that to me, I mean, it, it made little sense to go for two there. And it made no sense on what they did. On I mean, the rationale for kind of like the rationale of going for two when you're down, you know, when you've just scored when you're down by exactly two touchdowns. And then you score a touchdown. That's different. I'm not talking about that one. That one I loved happened more times yesterday than in my five years of watching football. I'm talking about you're down 14, you score a touchdown, you go for two. I'm all for that. I'm talking about, no, no. When they went down 30 to 29 with four and a half minutes left, they went for two there. Yeah. Listen, I, I I don't think the analytics would support going for two with four and a no, half. No, yeah, that 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 was a that was an odd choice. I I mean, again, I think the rationale is that you base. No, I mean, I I I don't think the I don't think the analytics really support that. That was a very odd move. And then, of course, the play calling conditional on you making that decision was again very questionable. Actually, with that convert, they actually drew did a running play, but of course, then did not do a running play on their fourth and one. That basically ended the game. They decided to like try a fifty-yard bomb, and acknowledging that if it had worked, if you know Adams and you know Renfrew hadn't crashed into each other and he caught it for a touchdown, narrative of that entire game would we our our entire discussion today would be dramatically different. Well, I, that's that's a little uh, bit the direction I go in these in these things. Is I've my heuristic is that there's so much bias in play call criticism. There's so much outcome mm-hmm. bias in play call criticism that I'm reluctant to do it. I'm, I acknowledge that there are people sufficiently expert to know it better. I am not that person. And, and I, I just think it's so hard to get away from the outcome bias. It's like, there's this it thing is. on the, on the ah. Texas fan boards. We call it, why didn't they call the touchdown play? Why didn't we, yeah. why didn't they call the, I'm mad. They didn't call the touchdown play on that one. That's a little bit. I, 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 I acknowledge it. Uh, you know, I try and focus on the process again. Like, and again, this is an analytics question on fourth and one are running plays more successful than passing plays. That's because I see well, it's going to be contingent. in my mind, way too many passing plays on fourth and one. Well, it's going to be you, contingent. It's going mean, to it's always going to be in response to how the other team is set up. Okay. It's, sure. It's also uh, depending you know, can on we, uh, can I, can we throw that out as a forecast question? Because I would argue that they are probably almost equally successful. Yeah, that, that's, right, that's the game. That's the game theoretic rational prediction that, that, that yeah. they would be used in a way balanced that balances the likelihood of success. See, I mean, to execute a successful passing play seems more complicated to me. Um, 
at, at that distance uh, for that distance. I mean, obviously passing plays are better than running plays because you typically need more than one yard or are looking <laughs> to get more than one yard. But if you just that look at one success. yard, a running play, and, uh, and short again, pass, maybe it's 22, it's a, maybe yeah. 22 years of Tom Brady being absolutely perfect at quarterback sneaks is completely, you know, it, it, it's, yeah, changed. that's maybe right. I'm, maybe that's I'm right. seeing some outcome bias there. I don't know. That's but it right. seems you, like these plays were all you need is essentially the quarterback to lean forward and then they instead go well, shot. Well, 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 for what, for what I, it's worth, I, for what it's worth, Maddie is saying that the, that the Eagles sneak their quarterback all the time. The Eagles are a very yep. smart organization. Can, it's can probably data informed. Well, one thing I heard, learned from Michael Lopez following his Twitter feed is that there's, there's fourth and one and there's fourth and inches. And the difference mm-hmm. is enormous. Yeah. And that you, unless yeah. you use the actual location, you're having you're getting a tremendous confounder. Well, let's just and let's that, just say it's like it, it probably ranges from one inch to you know fifty three inches, and a half, or yeah. yard, yard, inches. yard and a half. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of teams that were going for it on fourth and goal from the five or six, as compared to fourth and goal from the one. And I remember you. We even talked about that data. I, I don't remember. I think it was you that provided to us. It goes like eighty percent, fifty percent, twenty percent, something like that. Because we know at two yards, which is the two point conversion, it's roughly fifty fifty. So you're right. I mean, it's fourth and close is not the same yeah. as fourth and inches, or you know, it, it makes a huge difference. I think it was when the XFL. I think actually this came up. Remember the XFL. We were interviewing somebody right. from there when that was going on. They had the sort of they had three different options for the kind of convert you would try and do to, based on how much distance. So they actually were mm-hmm. collecting a little bit more, you know, actual kind of in-game data on this. No, that no, it, wasn't a, it Shane that you got to actually choose? Like, did you go from yeah. the four-yard line and you got yeah. this number of points and the three-yard line? By the way, I would yeah. love it if the NFL would change the rule where you could say, I'm going to go for it for the five and that's worth totally. three. It'd be a lot of that fun. would be phenomenal. We were playing. I was, I was texting with uh, our colleague and buddy Joe Simmons uh, during the Ravens game and Tucker, t- not just his final kick, but the oh. previous kick was just right down the middle. And so I, t- I texted him, he's at the game and I'm on TV. So I'm like that, I, I get the better view for the, where it was. I'm like, that kick would have been good if the goalposts were a third as far apart. And then, like later, he kicks another one, same thing. And Lopez, I think it was Lopez that tweeted that was like within inches of the dead center mark. And Simmons is like, well, they should they should allow you to choose the the, the width of the goalpost that you want to kick at. Be a huge advantage, more points for a narrow goalpost. And then Mina Kimes, Mina Kimes yeah. tweeted exactly that. So we had, everybody was thinking along the same lines, inspired by um, Tucker's ridiculous accuracy. Guys, I got a question along these lines. If we, if you, what's the optimal, what's the best, most comprehensive study of the impact of these fourth down decisions? If we wanted to muster evidence, forget the models. We don't want models. We want, I mean, even though the models are based on historical evidence, we want to just build up the data of actual decisions in these moments and contrast the outcomes of being the aggressor or being the traditionalist essentially in these fourth down decisions over some reasonably large sample. What data do you want? You don't, you don't, you, you want to, I mean, I know in some sense the win probability models are calibrated for that, but I want to, I want to not do the model. I want to, I want to take the persuasion challenge of saying, I'm not modeling anything guys. I'm just stacking up all the things that happened. What, how much would you, how much, I feel like you might need to watch, seasons and seasons and seasons of football for that to be the case. But what are your thoughts on that, Eric? 
Well, just quickly, I would want to match things. Like, for example, I could just take, you know, fourth and X and you fill in X. We could look at those opportunities where they went for it and they didn't go for it. However, I don't think that's enough. I think you'd have to control for a lot of other factors. In other words, you'd really want to build what we call a propensity score model, because I think there are many other factors that you'd want to match on other than just X, meaning the distance to go. Like, for example, the score in the game, maybe the weather conditions. There would be lots of other things where you'd essentially want to control for more other factors. And so if I could do that, I would want to match two teams where the propensity of them going for it or not going for it were matched. And then I would look at the outcomes of those two instances. So, Eric, that's that. I, I hear all of that. That makes a ton of sense to me. But I, the hardest part here, I think, is the outcome part, because we in some yeah, sense, what are you don't care. At? we don't care about that play. What we care about is the game. And so ultimately, we only have these big, fat, rare occurrences, which is game wins. And so, I mean, my God, I mean, I, th- I think you can't do this. So, well, can I don't... just jump in? Let me just jump in. I, I mean, right now, what they do is they look at win probability added, right? Um, and then they compare what models, models, Adi. They, they models. Essentially models. But one of the things about the fourth down decisions is that they tend not to be that divergent. I mean, the, the go for it versus the field goal or the field goal punt or the whatever those, the two obvious choices, they tend not to be more than three or four or five percentage points apart. Um, so the point being means that the differences are just tend to get, they're very small once you multiply by those two choices and you end up with very few differentials. I mean, if you ask uh, uh, a NBA, a NFL strategist, they'll tell you that the best fourth down decision-making isn't worth a win, not even close to a win across the season. Well, then why are we bothering so much? It's well, a lot because of, well, the bad, I, I think the worst fourth down decision-making loses game. I mean, I don't know if it's symmetric, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the Lions going for uh, for uh, it on fourth down against the Patriots on Sunday and going oh for five on fourth down. I mean, they probably would have lost the game anyway. But to say that didn't have a role, a substantial role in that game. Uh, but uh, Shane, now we're back to outcome bias, man. If you're the if you're the underdog, maybe they weren't that big an underdog in that game. I don't know what the Pats and Lions are rolling these days. I, mean, I know they got smashed. Uh, they, but if you're the underdog, been, you right. want to dial up the variance. And most of the time, it's not going to work out. But you're you're maximizing the probability of winning, even though it's still a small probability, by increasing variance. We would all recommend that. Yeah, no, and and again, I but I, you know we would all recommend that. But again, I guess your desiderata is that somehow you would do this analysis without using a model, like yeah, the added or because, something because, like that. Because it's a persuasion um, and, 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 I, and I guess that uh, that leaves you with just sort of like looking at times, you know, where it's fourth and blank, and you look at games where they went for it and how often that team won. Well, okay, okay, so I'm, I'm, I, mean, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know without a model. Or Good, no, no, stay with me. Stay, stay, Shane, stay with me. I am constraining yeah. ourselves to not have a model because I'm take this as a persuasion challenge. I want to. I want. What, if I were to give an, if I were giving an audience with whoever, name it, announcer, yep. coach, players, to convince them, model's not going to do it. It's just flat not going to do it. The other thing that I'm concerned about is everybody obsesses about. What happens when they make the unorthodox decision, unorthodox decision, and it doesn't yeah. work out? This is exactly one quarter 
of the data that you need. You want to know when they make the unorthodox decision and it does work out. And you want to know what happens when they make the orthodox decision and it does and doesn't work out. You got to sample the whole thing. Yeah. And, and I mean, just I not think happening. you're really doing a persuasion argument, you just have to look at the empirical rates of what actually, I, I mean, it, no, I don't, and, yeah, and you would need a large enough sample size with that. Let, let me, that, uh, you know, you would be have to average over a lot of different contexts and to yep. build in the context, you need models. So let me just, I'm going to be a model, model uh, uh, evangelist here. But first of all, you, may, you kind of belittle the one win. First of all, one win's a lot. Isn't that a lot in, in the NFL? One win? That's, I mean, if you had to pay for a one win, it costs you a lot. Good. Um, but I'm going to back away. I think that persuading is, an, is next impossible because it is, it is, it, it, it's a slow accumulation. And this is not a, unless you're going to fall into the trap of outcome bias, which is a which is a rhetorical trick. It's not something that we analysts should fall for. You're you're in other words, you, unless you want to cheat, you can't make a persuasive <laughs> a model without Adam, without analysis. Well, it depends on if you want to win or if you want to be right. If you want to win, then you take every advantage you get. And when the anecdotes break your way, by God, you, you beat yeah, the other yeah. side with it. And you need to have the model and be right, but you need chance to work in your favor because you're only talking about small edges. And so you need chance to work. This is the friggin' Ravens. They've made the aggressive choice time and time again, and they keep on not working out. It's just bad luck. And they need these luck to turn at some point. The reason persuasion matters is there's, there's Harbaugh backing away from his philosophy from the last. So, so let me, I had a, you I had can't tell me, you can't tell me that wasn't a political choice, a direct so consequence I, I, of the, of the damage done, the, the, the politics of the week before. So, so I got an opportunity to have a, a nice conversation about fourth down decisions with a former NFL offensive lineman. And his remark, which was excellent, he says, thank you, analytics, for giving our coaches the courage to do the right thing <laughs> by yeah. convincing the public yeah. that it's a smart move. And he says, we knew it on the field all the time. We've known it for 10 years. That's interesting. Uh, and- <laughs> well, this is, this is, I think that's the, the counterfactual I to play with is that imagine a world, so much of this is just the norm. The norm happens to be to do the conservative thing. What if the norm were to be aggressive? Imagine it's it's really easy to imagine all this symmetrical arguments against doing the conservative thing if the norm is aggressive. In fact, it kind of makes more sense given that it's NFL. This is a macho sport. Why in the world are we criticizing folks for being aggressive? That's largely just because it's the norm. Guys, we could do this for a while, and 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 we'll probably come back to it. But we've only got a few minutes left, and I know we need to talk about the Yankees, um, in particular, Judge. And we made these forecasts all season long, and then finally we had a settling up. They end up, he ends up at sixty-two. What are your thoughts on this, and how did we do in our forecast? So I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, one of the things we had some some listener feedback says we should go back and evaluate our forecast. I don't remember what my forecast was, but I think I was over sixty. For most of the ha- second half of the season, but not far over 60. So I think you were 64, to, 63 64. or 40%. And so we ended up at 62. Uh, one thing that was curious is they stopped pitching to him towards the last uh, part Absolutely. of the game. See, and it, was, it really was nuts. Um, almost a bit aggravating as a Yankee fan. Um, well, yeah, but, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> well, well, one wonders why they pitched to him so much during the season. <laughs> yeah, if yeah, it turns yeah. out, he hits a lot no, less home runs. No, I, I, I'll tell you the answer. I'll tell the answer because they were losing games because of it. What judge was walking like crazy and scoring runs. You, you walk your leadoff hitter. You're, you t- you change your expected runs in that inning from 0.45 to 0.96 or approximately. Is that, why they, pitched, hitter, is that why they batted him first? By of way? course. Well, no, they do that for a couple of more at bats, well. more at bats. But the other reason is getting judge on base on as the first batter of the game, as regularly as they did 
hurts your opposition. They were, I, I don't know, I don't want to get into psychology, but it sounds like they just weren't letting him hit because it just didn't feel like letting him hit. It was mm-hmm. costing the team's runs. They were losing because of it by walking him. So my memory is that we were, that he surpassed our early expectations. When we first started running yes. through our models, I think we were not anticipating his clearing 60. And then he kind of got on that streak late in the season and kind of jumped everything up. I don't know that means the models were wrong. Um, I mean, look, we'll own it. If the forecasts were low, they no, were low. We were I, I, think, I think it's more just that there was a lot of uncertainty and it worked out for him. He stayed healthy. That's yep. the biggest thing. Trout mm-hmm. actually hit at a faster rate of home runs than Judge, I think, did, but just wasn't healthy the entire season. And so yeah, therefore, it's less, less of a total. So often it comes back to that. What's uh, quickly forecast for his best home run total season in the rest of his career? Quickly. He will exceed 50. 62. Oh, going forward. Oh, oh no, like you, you're not counting this one. I don't think he goes higher than 62 again. Never. I would say 52. All yeah, right, that's guys. my guess, too. I was, he will exceed 50 at least once more. Interesting, but 50, but not 60. All right, guys, that's been three quarters. We still got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter. As you guys know, fourth quarter has been our interview segment in the last couple of years. We're now doing sometimes multiple interviews. So this is our second interview for the day, but we're typically going to do an interview here in Q4. We've got a double interview in this session. We've got two academics, two scientists who've been working on the front lines of the pandemic. We are interested in hearing from Dr. Colleen Naughton and Dr. John Dennehy. I'll introduce them momentarily, but I want to motivate this a little bit. These guys are going to talk about wastewater monitoring, basically. And some of you realize the connection and some of you are like, why are these guys talking to people about wastewater monitoring? We have been borderline riveted by wastewater monitoring in the last two and a half years. We didn't know this thing existed. And then we learn of this tool and then it expands during the pandemic and becomes this very seemingly very useful tool for monitoring the prevalence of things we're worried about. And so as things wind down, this is something we wanted to keep an eye on because it seems to us likely that it's going to be an important tool going forward. So this is the reason we brought these guys on. We're hoping to learn more. Let me give proper introductions to each of them. Dr. Colleen Naughton, Assistant Professor at UC Merced. She has her PhD in civil engineering with a certificate in water health and sustainability. Her lab created the dashboard used to track global wastewater testing for COVID-19. Dr. John Dennehy on the other side of the country is a professor at CUNY, City University of New York, And he's a virologist who is interested in all aspects of virus biology, ranging from virus molecular biology to virus ecology and evolution. Dr. Dennehy's lab works on detecting cryptic SARS COVID-2 variants in NYC wastewater. His work's been published in Nature Communications, the New York Times, and elsewhere. Colleen, John, thanks for making time with us. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So, Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Do y'all feel like this was like wastewater monitoring moment in the sun? You were you were laboring in obscurity for years, and all of a sudden the whole world is interested in your work. Is that kind of how it's happened, Colleen? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've had a passion for wastewater since undergrad and visiting my first wastewater treatment plant at Purdue University. Okay, and, oh, oh, oh yeah. Colleen, you, that that comment cannot go by. <laughs> tell us, <laughs> tell us about okay this this seminal visit to the Purdue wastewater treatment that inspired a passion in you. Now you have a PhD in your practice and under at UC Merced. Where does a passion for that come from? I mean, and I'm I'm joking, but I'm also serious. Like what? Why do you think, what is the passion and where does it come from? Yeah, thank you. No, it just, it's wastewater treatment involves all the chemical biological processes and it has geometry involved with the settling tanks and design. So you're combining all the science that you're learning and, you know, helping the environment and helping public health to remove uh, pathogens from the environment. So with the COVID monitoring, we're looking more upstream for community prevalence, but usually you're trying to remove those so we don't get those nasty things that used to kill lots of people and have uh, lower life expectancies like cholera and others. So it was, it's just great to see like the treatment processes at work and like how important they are. Mm-hmm. At what point in your trajectory in that space did, did the monitoring part of it become important? Was it always there or is that something that's emerged in your in, during your work experience? Yeah, I'd been involved in the Global Water Pathogens Project since uh, my like PhD research, uh, but more again, looking at removal by treatment technologies. Uh, but I knew wastewater monitoring exists, especially for polio virus for a few decades before, you know, COVID-19 pandemic hit. Uh, so I kind of knew about how to monitor for pathogens in wastewater and really, yeah, COVID-19 pandemic kind of exploded this field a little bit more. And I had some of the background to be able to understand the science and to track it and knew a lot of the people that were uh, helping out during the pandemic to track it in the wastewater. Well, let's hear about the, the polio side of things, because it sounds like that was one of the first big uses. And I think that's something that John probably can shed some light on. What What is the origin of wastewater monitoring and what has been its role in fighting polio? John, you're muted there. It happens all the time. Sorry about that. Um, Yeah, so I'm amazed as you are that I I got involved in wastewater monitoring because at the beginning of the pandemic, I was only vaguely aware of the potential of wastewater monitoring. Um, Mm -hmm. The most obvious thing to me was that I would would hear reports about how they were able to monitor opioids in wastewater. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily mm-hmm. uh, bacteria, right, or mm-hmm. viruses or mm-hmm. other organisms. Um, but we got involved in the wastewater monitoring uh, because a colleague of mine at the very outset of the pandemic, New York City was the epicenter back in May, April, March of 2020. And I was just looking for some way I could contribute my skills as a virologist to help out my city. My colleague sent me a paper from a group in the Netherlands where they detected SARS coronavirus in wastewater about a week or two before the first clinical case was diagnosed in that city. Mm -hmm. So I said, this is is exactly what we can contribute. We can help out with this project. We just need access to the wastewater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we reached out to the New York City Department of Environmental Protection. And because we were the City University of New York, they agreed to share wastewater with us. And we got access to the sample, and we've been testing ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, more recently, we've been looking for polio, which we can also find in wastewater. Um, recently, uh, a couple of months back, there was a, a paralytic polio case 
in Rockland County, which is just north of New York City. And, um, you know, obviously this is the first polio case we've had in the country in, in many, many years, 20 mm-hmm. or more years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everyone's scrambling to find out where this came from. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they've done uh, was to look at the wastewater uh, in Rockland County, but also New York City, and we were able to identify that there's quite a bit of polio going around and really? you know, circulating among people. 99% of the cases of people picking up this polio is asymptomatic. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that poor young man who got the paralytic polio, he just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's I, we, I had no idea. Does that mean that we're going to have to kick back up? Have we ever backed off of polio vaccines or immunization as children as we eradicate? Or are people still getting that? Is, still, is that still widespread? Well, most of us are vaccinated against polio. So mm-hmm. we have uh, about 90% coverage, at least in most areas of the country. Um, unfortunately, there's a few uh, mm-hmm. you know, sub-areas, sub-groups that don't take up vaccines like the rest of us. Right. There are certain communities where the percent of people vaccinated against polio is about 60%, wow. okay. which is sufficient for polio to come into the community and start spreading between an individual. Right. You may have heard of the term uh, herd immunity sure. talked about for the uh, SARS coronavirus pandemic. Well, polio similarly has a herd immunity threshold, which is maybe about 80, 80% of the population should be vaccinated against polio to prevent mm-hmm. its spread. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, in the communities in Rockland County and Brooklyn and other areas of the city, um, the percent of people who are vaccinated against polio is much less than 80%. Okay. Well, there's a whole, we could do a whole show on, on vaccinations, especially as we start seeing, you know, vaccination resistance or vaccination skepticism move into what we thought were almost impenetrable areas like polio, but we're not going to do that this half hour. Let's talk about the wastewater monitoring. And I'm curious what you guys would consider to be, is there an example of, of like the success story? If you were like to advertise for what wastewater monitoring can do based on the experience of the last two and a half years, is there a community or a case or a situation where it's really performed well, and especially in the way that it's provided actionable information. It's made a difference more than just awareness that it translated into impact. And I'm throwing that out to either of you. You weren't warned about that question ahead of time. I'm not sure if it exists, but we're excited about it. We want to understand better, like what is the case we can make for it? Yeah, there's a lot of great public health use cases out there that have, and we through we're involved in a global data center that has about six of them up on the website. But uh, I think uh, Catalonia and Spain, they have monitoring in like every region and they use the data to like see where uh, th- cases and whatnot might be increasing. And then they target actually health, uh, like clinical testing and even vaccine like centers. They do that in the Netherlands as well. So they see where COVID was rising and they're able to target resources in those areas. So there's been a lot of great, uh, public health use cases. And I think University of Arizona uh, was pretty famous as far as like the university dorm level monitoring and being able to estimate from the wastewater that they might have had two asymptomatic cases. And then they tested the whole dorm and they found 
two cases. And that's usually you can't correlate uh, the concentrations to case numbers. uh, But in that case, they had a very good knowledge of their sewer system. And like uh, John was saying that uh, they, um, yeah, were able, you know, to, uh, sorry, messed up there, but yeah, they, they just um, were able to, they were monitoring for opioids before. And so they kind of knew uh, about kind of this wastewater monitoring and potential fecal shedding and uh, relation to the uh, pathogen of interest. Right. Super interesting. So you gave two examples. One is a broader community or even a region. In both cases, the wastewater monitoring is acting as kind of a first screen. It's, 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 it's an indication of needing a second um, a, a closer look from somebody. So in the region, it might be, we just need to go in and, and imp- increase testing, but a smaller group like a school. And I remember one of the first places I ever saw this was a, I forget, it was a pretty small school in Colorado, I think that had discovered, had, had used it very productively, but you're talking about a large school in Arizona and very focused. It's like, we're going to keep a real close look on this and go in and test a place where we can test comprehensively. Um, I think Eric wanted to jump in, and then I think Shane wanted to jump in on the heels of that. Yeah, I was just going to ask, you know, a lot of times uh, we run experiments or we do measurements all the time. And one of the concerns we have is that they're not either not very sensitive, that's one, or two, um, from when some change happens, um, it takes a long time to measure a difference. How does it work with wastewater? Like if the amount of COVID activity dramatically increases or decreases, would we see it immediately? Is Let me ask in both ways. Is there a long enough half-life? And is the sensitivity enough that we would notice a rapid change? I'll take a dab at that. So, yeah, I think it's pretty dramatic how you can see a spike in the case. The most obvious thing that comes to mind for me is in uh, 2021, the end of the year, um, we saw kind of a lull in the number of cases and also the amount of uh, virus we were seeing in the wastewater. And then suddenly, right after Thanksgiving, uh, we saw a massive increase in the wastewater. And I don't know if you recall, but this at the end of 2021, early 2022, when, when the Omicron wave hit, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. saw the Omicron wave coming almost just before the cases started spiking. Mm-hmm, and we at first mm-hmm. we thought, you know, there was something wrong with our assays. And we suddenly got mm-hmm. from a, one week to another, you know, a 100% jump in the number of mm-hmm. virus particles in the wastewater. And we're scratching our head, wondering what's <clears throat> going on. Only later on do we start seeing the Omicron. news about this Omicron variant. Incredible. Incredible. It it sounds, you know, rather instantaneous and rather precise. I mean, it's like absurdly good measurement. That's in some ways, let's just check that against you, because that's as to the layperson from a distance, it seems absurdly good. What in what ways is it not good? And what are the limitations here? And if they let me just extend on Kate's question. And if there are none, why aren't we just reporting this? Why are we wasting our time with all this other self-report inaccurate testing. Why don't we just go to you guys? You guys just tell us what's happening in every location. If you don't have enough funds to do it, why don't we just give you more money so you can measure it everywhere? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great tool. Again, we can't like correlate or say this is the amount of cases to the wastewater necessarily, but you know, community prevalence and trends. We actually detected the Omicron variant in Merced through the Healthy Central Valley Together project weeks before the first clinical test, since you're sampling a larger population and not those just seeking testing behavior. But a limitation is 
in the U.S., uh, 80% of people are served by a sewer system. So you're not getting that other 20%. So you need to make sure they get access to other resources so that population is covered. And it's it's a lot cheaper than individually testing all those millions of people you're doing through wastewater, uh, but it's not a replacement and it does still require resources and money. I guess another limitation would be the granularity. So uh, we're in New York City, we've got eight and a half million people. And some of our suicides serve hundreds of thousands of people. One of the questions posed to me by the Department of Health is, okay, you've given us the concentration of virus in the wastewater. What are we supposed to do with this information? <laughs> right, um, right, are we right. going to shut down the suicide and, and have a, uh, you know, a lockdown? And that, that was the question. And it's kind of true. It's best mm-hmm. suited for showing trends in what's happening in the cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't give you too much information about, you know, how to respond to it. I think if you were to increase your granularity by looking uh, at a much smaller area, one of the things we're doing now is looking at the hospital level. Mm -hmm. We're sequencing and uh, analyzing the wastewater obtained from a hospital. So we know that we have a relatively small population in the thousands of people. And we're able to tell the level of coronavirus, of other viruses, influenza, monkeypox, polio, anything that a hospital wants to know. Wow. I mean, this, it, again, uh, talking with y'all is only making me more intrigued by the whole thing because it sounds like, okay, now we've got this basic te- technology and we can deploy it against any kind of bad that we want to assess. And it's quite reliable, it sounds like. And relatively instantaneous. Um, so, and Shane, with apologies, I know you're going to get in here in a second, but I'm, I'm trying to understand, like, how does this, what happens next on this front? Colleen says, well, you need resources. How expensive is this stuff? How, to what extent are they becoming more economical? And if it's this good, are we going to see it rolled out? Are we seeing more and more municipalities deploying it? Are we seeing more and more schools and hospitals deploying it? Or is it one of these things where we academics are fired up about it because it's neat, but the public policy decision makers are like un- un- unfazed? Colleen. Yeah, no, it's already happening. The scale up, the, the CDC has the National Wastewater Surveillance System, and they are sharing a lot of the data and trends, and they had a you know another phase of their contract where they expanded to 500 more sites. And we are seeing this transition from academic labs to commercial uh, labs. Uh, you know, Biobots, a, a big one, uh, Eurofins, and as well as uh, Verily, and a lot of Luminultra, and a lot of different companies are out there. And like where the academics are focusing more on developing the methodology and understanding the science more. And CDC is already expanding. Their targets, they're adding, they should have added monkeypox or mpox uh, by now, or you'll see, be seeing some of that data. Uh, and I think it's being supported moving forward. We might see some scale back, uh, you know, as the pandemic transitions, uh, but I think it's here to stay. Uh, and it's just more prioritizing the targets. How long until every household, <laughs> let's, take it, let's take it even further, household level, I'm going to pick one up off of Amazon. I'm going to run the assays myself like I might clean my pool and I'm going to know right away whether my family is in danger of something before I have to passively. No one's going to have to 
you know, take a test and swab their nose. I'm just going to like run my, run my little assays. How long until that happens? Is it, is it 10 years away? Is it 50 years away? Is it ever going to happen like that? John, what do you think? I don't really see it being like a household level thing. Um, I, I see it being more of a workplace, uh, a hospital, a school, yeah. organizational uh, institution like that. Okay. And the power of this, I think, is that you're able to monitor a population, a relatively small population, look for anything new that's coming in that might be pose a risk. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's going to be the future. And at a, a relatively small level, um, and hopefully we'll have buy-in from different, uh, content, you know, different members of the community to pay for this because it, it is going to be relatively expensive. And there's going to be decisions and trade-offs. Do we invest our money in schools or do we invest our money in pandemic preparedness? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, kind of keying off the kind of talking about discovering or, or, or detecting something new. Is it the, I guess the question I sort of had about the sort of success story of seeing the Omicron wave early, did, did does this technology actually kind of, is there sequencing happening kind of in real time with this technology? Or is it more that you detect a wave through a big spike in the number of cases and then that alerts people to start potentially testing for a new variant like was the like will you actually be able like does wastewater uh, system this kind of testing alone allow you to detect a novel variant or is it this paired with kind of a increased caseload warning sign then subsequent testing so one thing one thing that we had difficulty with was that in the beginning of the pandemic we were interested in uh, sequencing SARS coronavirus to monitor the evolution but the traditional way of doing this is to take all the DNA and try to sequence the entire genome of SARS coronavirus. Um, and this is not terribly easy to do when you're dealing with RNA that is extracted from wastewater. So we weren't getting great results. So what we did instead was figured, well, why don't we just look at an area that we think is important in the SARS coronavirus genome for evolving. How is the genome going to change to better infect humans? And we come, come up with this um, area of the spike protein, which helps the virus to attack to a host cell and get inside and reproduce. So there's an area called a receptor binding domain. And we decided we'd just sequence that. And that worked fantastic. We had great results with that. And we started looking at our data and matching the mutations that we were seeing to the global database of all mutations that are found in clinical samples. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, what we, we started seeing with all these mutations appearing in viruses obtained from wastewater that were not appearing in mm-hmm. clinical sequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, for over a year, we were scratching our heads, wondering where these things were coming from. We came mm-hmm. up with all kinds of other hypotheses. Maybe the rats in the New York City sewers are getting right. infected and shedding new variants. Um, as it turns out, uh, one of my collaborators, Mark Johnson from the University of Missouri and Dave O'Connor from uh, Wisconsin, um, found a wastewater variant in uh, a small town in, in Wisconsin 
and they were able to trace it back to its source, something that's not really possible in New York City because it was such a giant city mm -hmm. with too many people, basically. But in a small town, they were able to, to find that the variant, this cryptic variant, was coming from a small business with about 30 employees. Hmm. And they were, um, apparently, someone was working at that facility would come into every work every day, use the facilities at that place, shed the virus that he was infected with or she was infected with, and we were able to detect it in the wastewater. Mm -hmm. This person mm -hmm. was persistently infected for at least eight or nine months. Wow. Okay. And they continually added on new mutation. Wow. This had happened a lot of times in a lot of different places. And what we think is that people um, who have a weakened immune system mm -hmm. are getting infected. Maybe they're not getting infected in the face, so they're not um, experiencing symptoms, but they are getting a gut infection. Mm -hmm. The virus persists in the patient for many, many months. The weakened immune system is insufficient to eradicate it completely, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it is evolving somewhat to combat the uh, antibodies created by the immune system. Mm -hmm. And eventually mm -hmm. that virus starts evolving. And what we now think is many of the cryptic variants precede the variant of concern that we start right. seeing. Mm -hmm. We think that the alpha variant, the Omicron variant, all had their origin in persistently infected immunocompromised patients mm -hmm. that later on gained enough mutation that they were able to emerge into the wider population, mm -hmm. becoming the Omicron wave. So we're now afraid that some of these new cryptic variants could eventually emerge to become the next big COVID wave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating and fascinating that this technology in a small town like that contributed to the to, to cracking that mystery. Guys, we're going to need to let you go shortly. Maybe as a way to wrap up, we'll ask Colleen to talk about what you think is next with this technology. I know, Colleen, you've been working as a part of a global team. Is that is is what 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 what's the next round of this look like? What as you deploy, as you roll this thing out, what's the frontier, what's the margin that's most valuable to be pushing on right now? Yeah, I think the next like frontier is definitely like these um using it. MPOX was a great example of rolling it out relatively quickly for a new emerging pathogen, but now we're seeing increased monitoring for influenza that we've been experiencing and many thousands of people die each year from uh, and just hopefully we're going to increase the scope and the equity both within the United States and globally for access to this tool uh, and yeah I think just moving forward we're going to see an expansion of targets antimicrobial resistance is known as kind of the silent pandemic that kills like six million seven million people right. a year right. so hopefully we can uh, refine that a little bit more, but there's just a ton of targets to monitor for that. But hopefully we can help address some of these crises, other crises we have like antimicrobial resistance and the opioid uh, epidemic as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Colleen, you mentioned influenza. Maybe it's not too fanciful to think that there'll be municipalities that provide a kind of dashboard, a public dashboard that says influenza is at a high level right now or a low level, like take extra precaution or 
by God, go out and get your flu shot. That is that already happening, or is that is that imminent? It feels like it ought to be very straightforward. Yeah, wastewater scan, the sewer coronavirus alert network uh, now expanding, but beyond coronavirus through Stanford and Emory University has been monitoring influenza, I think, th- since early this year, and they're doing it and they're expanding to like 300 sites and they have influenza A and respiratory syncytial virus, which is the common cold. And we've been using that to inform like local public health departments and Healthy Central Valley together is like a partner in that. And it was good that we saw in Merced, a long-term healthcare facility had an influenza outbreak and we were able to track that and that wasn't spreading throughout the community through the wastewater. Wow. Okay. Well, listen, super interesting, really cool work you guys are doing. We wish you the best with it going forward. And we certainly appreciate your taking some time away to tell us about it. Hope you guys have a good evening and wish you the best with everything. Thank, Thank you, you for having time. us. Yeah. Colleen Naughton from UC Merced and John Dennehy from CUNY, both working on the wastewater monitoring frontier, not just of pandemic, not just of COVID-19, but of new baddies out there that we're trying to understand better. Thank you, guys. All right, guys, Eric, Shane, I'm curious your thoughts. That's 27 minutes on wastewater monitoring pandemic and beyond. You came in intrigued, enthusiastic. How are you coming out and what are you thinking? I'm just excited by the precision of it. Um, My belief from listening to Drs. Dennehy and Naughton is the accuracy of it, the potential real-time nature of it, but I thought their comments about, so what do I do with this because of the lack of granularity is an interesting one. And I thought you had an interesting comment at the end, Kate, about maybe there's something that could be done about warnings at the municipality level yeah. or different uh, you know, suggestions of suggested behaviors at the municipality level. But that's the way I took from it is that we have to continue doing this. You know, I, to me, it's the most accurate source of information for lots of things, by the way, not just for COVID. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I honestly, just the base tech. I mean, I, I was also left kind of impressed by sort of the accuracy and kind of the use cases that they already have. But I mean, just the basic technology that allows essentially involuntary sampling so people don't, you know, can't sort of opt out of this particular system, really, unless they're really off the grid, as well as the fact that it is going to be, therefore, a more representative sample of, of a sort yeah. of situation, a high right. resolution. Again, we, you know, all these kind of situations where we me- we're measuring like kind of test test cases and like you know all this kind of essentially voluntarily voluntary information it's hugely biased and we've been dealing with that this whole time so having something that could be a little little bit more of a essentially a census if it was kind of rolled out at like you know kind of at every on every sewer system level um you know gives you like just a way more accurate picture of what's going on with any potential like very you know disease What's actually interesting about that, your comment, Shane, is that if you have a census, which means in theory you have the truth, we could in some sense measure the degree of bias of other methods. And then Mm -hmm. one could come up to an interesting statistical question. Is that bias persistent? Is it stable? Is it in the same direction? So uh, having a census is a viable thing. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I would say the technology itself doesn't sound like it's measured without error, you know, and, and you know, we, we were sort of obviously mostly focused because of the way it's currently deployed about sensitivity. But, you know, if, if it really was suddenly like we had the money to put this in every sewer system, we'd have to start being concerned about specificity, too. You know, that like, you know, as you kind of scale it up, are you suddenly, you know, is, is it actually a kind of a ground truth kind of technology or or what kind of sort of false positive and false negative? 
negative yep. rates you'd be dealing with at that kind of scale. But I, I mean, like, I don't want to take away from that as kind of a dream. I think it would be, it's way, it's way better than some of the other things we have right now, like self-report yep. and, you yep. know, like, you know, just the number of like people who get tested, et cetera. No, it's a terrific point. And it's one that we've struggled with for the entirety of the pandemic is the selection bias in every, in every measure. And, and Shane's saying, look, this doesn't have selection bias. And Eric, your point about if you had census, you could then estimate bias. Note that you don't have to have that for the whole country. If you had census for some right. representative community, you right. could then extrapolate the bias you see there to where you don't have the census in other places, but you have the bias measure. It'd be super instructive in that way. I just want to want to add one thing. It's it's yet another example of a model. I think one of the things models do best, at least for, forecasting models do best. This isn't even a forecasting model. This is just a model. They give that early signal. They 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 let you see things before our intuition sees them before our, our plain eyes see them. Like even, you know, the best of the football power rankings, they just beat public opinion by a couple of weeks. They just identify the dogs and the surprises a little bit ahead of the others. We're hearing that with this monitoring system as well. It's like, this is an early signal before you're going to get it in other ways. And that should be helpful. All right, guys, let's wrap it up there. That has been our fourth quarter, our interview segment, a little bit, on COVID and a super interesting technology that's being used there and other places. That has been two hours of sports analytics. It's been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. For the team here in the fourth quarter, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. For the team member who was earlier in the show but missed the fourth quarter, Audie Weiner. For the boss man team member, Matty Datz and the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>